Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and their families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of lung disease, severe critical illness, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. Our goal is to help you stay informed in order to take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Respiratory Inspirations. Uh, I'm your host, Raid Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic, and my guest today is Dr. Maeve McMurdo, who's the director of our Occupational Lung Disease Program, and we'll be talking about beryllium exposure and disease. So, uh, Maeve, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. You know, not everybody is familiar with what beryllium is, other than maybe knowing it's a metal. Can you tell us more about beryllium and its properties? Absolutely. So beryllium is, in fact, a metal. It's very lightweight. It's very heat resistant. It's extremely strong. And so it's really widely used for our industry, both in the United States and globally, for things like aerospace manufacturing, for shipbuilding, basically anything we need, something that's going to be strong and do well under heat, you'll see beryllium. Yes, so maybe you can mention some of the industries, you know, expand a little bit on the industries because I think some people may not be aware maybe that they are being exposed to beryllium because it doesn't say beryllium on everything that they do, but there are, there are a lot of beryllium alloys that are used in different settings. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think classically when you think about beryllium, really we think about nuclear weapons manufacture. And in the United States in the 40s and 50s, that was really where we saw it used the most. The United States really came to the forefront as a leader in beryllium manufacturing, and we still actually make most of the beryllium in the world. We are one of the primary exporters to globally of beryllium. But it's also used in things like shipbuilding, like building airplanes, even in things like bicycles, golf clubs, where it needs to be lightweight and strong, and then some kind of surprising things like dental alloys. Classically, beryllium was used, so not so much anymore. So it really is all over the place. It's a very, very commonly used material we often don't really think about because, like you said, things aren't labeled as contains beryllium. Yeah. So if you're a worker, you know, probably it helps to look at maybe the uh, material safety uh, data sheets that you're working with just in case there's beryllium. Would you think that would be helpful? You know, I think the challenge with beryllium in, in the workforce is that usually it's in an alloy form. And so it's not going to be straight beryllium. It's going to be beryllium mixed with something else. In theory, if you're a worker who's exposed to beryllium, your work should be telling you because there are pretty strict standards that they've got to follow to minimize your exposure to beryllium and beryllium-containing compounds, especially if you're cutting or grinding it. Yeah. Beryllium that's just solid and not being touched or moved is absolutely safe. The harm from beryllium and the danger from beryllium really comes when you cut, grind, or aerosolize it. And so in those jobs, you should be aware, but sometimes you aren't always. Again, not all employers are aware that the allies they're working with contain beryllium. The SDS should be a clue, but really, again, you may want to ask your employer, if you're worried about it, say, hey, what are we actually working with? Yeah, that's a good point. Knowledge is, is power in this situation. So you mentioned all the reasons we use beryllium in different industries. Now we alluded to the fact that it is harmful. How is beryllium harmful? How does it cause uh, lung or other organ damage? So beryllium is actually really unique in that it can work with the body to trigger an autoimmune response. And we basically think of that as being almost like an allergy to beryllium or beryllium sensitization. So for some workers and people who are exposed to beryllium, it kind of turns on a switch in the body and triggers an autoimmune predisposition 
doesn't directly cause disease, but it makes your body at risk for autoimmunity, so inflammation. And that exposure over time can then lead to something called chronic brilliant disease in people who, again, have ongoing exposure who are just unlucky. You know, we talk also about some genetic susceptibility, you know, some you know, environment gene interaction. Some people have genetic susceptibility to beryllium. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. yeah. So there are some genes that increase your risk of developing that beryllium sensitization, that beryllium allergy. But even workers who don't have that gene can still develop sensitization. It really is often a mix of the environment, the exposure, so kind of what kind of work you're doing, and then your genetic predisposition. There's one gene we know about in particular, but there are other genes too which may play a role. And so it's not just one single, again, exposure, but really the whole picture of a person's life that impacts their risk of developing sensitization. So that brings, since we're talking to patients and families here, is it worth getting genetic testing for this before you get a job or if you have a job with beryllium? Because, you know, we have genetic tests now done for all kinds of things. Would it be helpful to have a genetic test here? You know, I have some workers who do and some workers who don't because, like I mentioned, having the gene doesn't necessarily mean you're going to develop disease and not having the gene doesn't mean you're going to develop disease either. And so it can be helpful to know, but it may also not change what you do. And so I think it really depends on kind of where you stand. Are you someone who likes to know things? Are you like to plan for the worst and plan for the best? Or are you someone who prefer to not know unless something's going to change? And so I think if you're thinking about genetic screening, it's really worth having a discussion with your doctor about it and kind of saying, what is this going to mean for me going forward? Because it's not a slam dunk. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess you could have a negative test and give you a false sense of security, thinking, oh, I can get exposed, but you, know, you still can't get beryllium disease, even if you have a negative test. Absolutely. And, and having a positive test may kind of let you kind of give up on an otherwise good job and without necessarily having to be, uh, you know, progressing to disease. So that's... It's tough. And I think yeah. also, I mean, what does it mean for your family? Genetic testing is always complicated, so I think it's worth having a discussion. It's not a bad thing to do, but it is something you want to think about rather than just jumping into it. So how do we know, how do we find out if somebody has beryllium disease or not? You know, I, you know, as we discussed in other settings, it's like you get exposed, you get sensitized or allergic, and then you get the disease as the next step. How do you look for these patients? How does a patient know that they have beryllium disease or sensitization or not? So it's kind of two parts to that. So the first part is screening for that sensitization. And that typically happens through your workplace, though it may not always, again, if your employer is not aware they're working with beryllium compounds. But OSHA basically mandates for all beryllium-exposed workers screening for sensitization. And that's a blood test called the beryllium LPT, or lymphocyte proliferation test, that looks for their abnormal cell response to beryllium. Now, like I kind of hinted at earlier, you can be working with beryllium and develop sensitization straight away, or you can work with beryllium for years and then develop sensitization. There's no necessarily single point of exposure that's going to trigger disease. And so as long as you're exposed, you should be having ongoing screening for sensitization. And that typically occurs through the workplace. That screening also typically includes things like breathing tests, just because part of the workplace surveillance. But Say you had a positive result and it became diagnosed, that's when you come to me in the Cleveland Clinic for further evaluation. Yeah, just talking about the, the duration, that's one of the most intriguing things about this disease. I've, In my practice, I've seen people develop the disease in as short as three weeks, and I've seen them present with the disease as long as 30 years after exposure. So it's really, once you are exposed, you're always at risk. Exactly. And even after you're no longer exposed, you're still at risk. So yeah. I tell people who, again, work with Berlin for a short period of time, you kind of still really do need screening. 
because you could become sensitized five, ten years later. There is no magic bullet where suddenly you are no longer at risk once you've been exposed. So once you have a, a positive blood lymphocyte perforation test or LPT, you're considered sensitized. What does that really mean? So I can't think about it as being like the gasoline for a fire. So sensitized is kind of basically you're at increased risk of something called chronic beryllium disease. And chronic beryllium disease is the actual disease caused by beryllium. It's an autoimmune lung disease that looks like sarcoidosis. Basically, we see these cells called granulomas in the lungs and inflammation. Now, that can happen right away after you're sensitized, or it can happen many years later, or it may not happen at all. So there are a lot of workers who are sensitized who live their entire life sensitized and never develop disease. But because it could happen, we recommend that anyone who's become sensitized should be screened for chronic brilliant disease on a pretty regular basis to make sure it's not developing. Because if it develops, we can treat it, but only if we catch it early or early-ish. So what kind of tests do you do to figure that out? You know, if somebody comes to you with a positive test, they're sensitized, what do they expect to be tested for? So we're going to do a whole bunch of breathing tests looking at how your lungs function along with a CAT scan looking for any abnormalities in the lungs themselves. Now, the only way to actually confirm a diagnosis of chronic beryllium disease is to get something called a bronchoscopy, which is basically a test where we put you all the way to sleep and then go down with a little camera into the lungs to take biopsies and washings. I tell my patients that even that's not 100%, because in early chronic beryllium disease, the inflammation can be really patchy. And so, especially if the CAT scan looks pretty normal and the breathing tests look pretty normal, a bronchoscopy may actually miss some of the cells, the inflammatory cells that are the signs of chronic brain disease. In that case, things like the BAL, the bronchial alveolar fluid, the lung fluid washing can be helpful. We run that for an LPT, the lymphocyte proliferation test too, and look for certain kinds of inflammatory cells called lymphocytes in the washings too. And those can all give us clues towards chronic brain disease. But unfortunately, right now, there's no one slam dunk diagnostic testing. It really requires someone who sees a lot of this to look at the whole picture and the whole story and go, this looks like brilliant, well, this doesn't. So what if somebody, you know, bronchoscopy, what you mentioned, involves, you know, like taking a tube and going down to somebody's lungs to do washings like an endoscopy. So what if somebody does not want to have the, the bronchoscopy? How do you approach them? So I have a lot of patients who don't want the bronchoscopy. I think it's absolutely reasonable. And we often just watch and monitor. There may be a time when the CAT scan becomes abnormal enough that it's clear, and we can sometimes make the diagnosis that way, but typically to really make that diagnosis we require some more testing. Again, it kind of comes down to whether people are symptomatic and what their preferences are about pursuing testing, because some people don't really want to know, some people don't want to go for invasive testing, especially if they feel good. But if things change and they start feeling bad, that's when I sometimes push a little bit harder, because that's when really it's important to make the diagnosis to think about treatment and to think about workers' compensation and how we approach getting you out of the workplace. Yeah. So again, we talked about exposure leading to sensitization, leading to disease. How can you tell as a physician when somebody comes to you whether they're only sensitized or they have also the beryllium disease? What is What do you find in the test that you mentioned? What are you looking for? So it can be really subtle, which is sometimes a challenge because people who are exposed to beryllium are often working really physically active jobs and they're physically healthy. They're people who can climb five flights of stairs, they can run a marathon, they don't get short of breath. So they'll tell me kind of things which are pretty subtle, like, you know, I can still work, but I feel more short of breath wearing my mask than I used to. Or I can only climb three flights of stairs, not five flights of stairs. Or sometimes when I work really hard at work, I kind of pause and catch my breath. Those are the subtle signs. It can be more obvious, but sometimes it's not. It can be really, really tough. Breathing tests are helpful. And really, what's really helpful is looking at the trend in breathing tests. So people who are exposed to brilliant will often get breathing tests done through their workplace. 
And even though they might still be normal, looking at how they've changed can really give me a clue. And then the CAT scan will sometimes show us signs of inflammation either in the lungs or in the airways. Because Breland disease can also kind of mimic an asthma-like picture as well as mimicking sarcoid. And so we look for both. Yeah, great points. And also another thing to add to this is some patients could be completely asymptomatic, right? I've seen many patients who have a positive LPT test, the lymphocyte proficient test on the blood, but everything, their x-ray, their pulmonary function test, even their CAT scan is normal. And, you know, they're concerned enough that you do a biopsy through bronchoscopy and lo and behold, they have granulomas, which are the hallmark of the disease. So you still could have the disease even if you're not having symptoms, which emphasizes the importance of early evaluation. Absolutely. And again, the goal is to keep you having no symptoms. Really, my goal with these patients is to keep you feeling like you feel normal. And how do you do that? So that depends. If you are, again, feeling normal, we just watch you really closely. And if things change, we start about putting you on treatment. And there's a bunch of treatments. So I always tell people with chronic brain disease, it's a really treatable disease. There's a lot we can do for you to get you feeling back to normal. Steroids are often our first line go-to, and they work really well. People who have mild disease, I use often inhaled steroids, like an asthma inhaler. And that can sometimes be enough to kind of keep things under control and keep you feeling good. If people aren't responding to steroids, or if they've got steroid side effects, because steroids can cause all kinds of side effects, we think about drugs that are sort of called second-line drugs, steroid-sparing agents, and there are a number of those we can try too. But one important part, and one sometimes the most challenging part, is when someone has chronic beryllium disease, really it's important that they're no longer exposed to beryllium. And so that can yeah, be challenging. That's a tricky one. I know. Let's talk about that. Let's <laughs> unpack this one a little yeah. bit. Because there are lots of things about whether you're, you're sensitized or not, you have CBD or not, whether you can find another job or not. There are a lot of things that go into making a decision to stop being exposed to beryllium. Tell us more about that. So, you know, it's challenging because this is a pretty rare disease. But what we know is that if you're sensitized and exposed to ongoing beryllium, your risk of developing chronic beryllium disease is probably higher. And similarly, if you have chronic beryllium disease and you're still exposed, the risk of having progression is higher too. It's challenging because, again, this is a small studies and small samples. There's not slam dunk evidence. But if it was me personally, especially if I developed chronic beryllium disease, I'd say, you know, it's time to get out of the workplace. And that can be challenging because these are people who are working really skilled jobs, often really well-paying jobs, and you're settled in a place and don't really want to move. But one nice thing about Brilliant, if you work for a DOE or DOL-eligible company, is there's actually a program to help workers who have chronic Brilliant disease get out of the workplace and get reimbursement. Yeah, so there's compensation, but you have to be working in a certain place at a certain time, right? It has to be related to the DOE work, mm. correct? So, yeah, so most workers who are working around, again, nuclear weapons manufacturing are going to be eligible. Not all workers are, but it's something where, again, it's helpful to have someone who knows about chronic brain disease, but also knows about the kind of work that you're doing, because there's a lot of detail in here which can really be helpful in figuring out next steps. Yeah. So my advice to patients, I don't know, if, I hope you agree with that, is we don't really have solid evidence that uh, if you once you have sensitization or disease, that continued exposure will make you worse. But you know the fact that you don't have that evidence doesn't mean it's not the case because, as you said, it's a rare disease. We can't do a lot of studies in that. You can't expose people, you know, to find no. out. You know, you know, you only we are going by experiments of nature where people are just exposed naturally or part of their job. But the reality is, it's an allergic response. Like anything, if you're allergic to pollen, if you're allergic to anything, you really the best way to do is to avoid it. I recommend to people to avoid exposure even when they're sensitized, 
But the reality is most people really don't end up quitting or moving on until they get the disease, which is unfortunate, but at least it's better than sticking around. What what has been your experience? That's exactly what I do too. I think the challenge is that, like I mentioned, even if you are exposed, because there's so much that goes into it, it's genetics, it's the environment, it's the kind of work you're doing, we can't predict everyone who's sensitized when they're going to develop chronic brain disease, if they're going to develop chronic brain disease. But there are some things that you should do. I mean, honestly, regardless of whether they're sensitized or not, wearing PPE, making sure that you, again, don't get exposed to beryllium, following the guidelines and following the protocols, and then getting screened. Getting screened is really important. If your workplace offers it, you should be doing it because the more information you have, the more of an informed decision you can make. That's great. So we've talked about exposure. We've talked about sensitization, which is the next step. We've talked about telling expo- you know, sensitization from disease. But let's say somebody is diagnosed with chronic beryllium disease. How do you follow them and monitor them over time, you know, whether they're on treatment or not? How do, what's, what, are, what, what do they expect? So similar to when we're doing the testing, people come back for usually breathing tests and an office visit every six months to one year, sometimes sooner if things are not going well. And then CAT scans every one to two years. And again, that really depends based on how you're feeling and what's happening. If you're developing symptoms which are getting worse rapidly, that happens sooner. If you're really stable and feel great, we may not get a CAT scan for many years. And so it's really targeted to how you feel and how your testing is looking. It's an ongoing relationship, though. So I have patients who come from all over the country to come back and see me for their screening for their chronic brain disease, just because, again, it's one of those things where you want to have a physician who knows about chronic brain disease and what can happen and kind of what the early warning signs are to look out for. Yeah, these are very important points. So as we wrap things up, I'm trying to kind of share some uh, key points with our audience here and then maybe give you the opportunity to do the same. So what I've heard from you is that uh, beryllium as a metal is useful in many industries. So if you are a worker or I have a family member who's a worker in an industry, just keep that in mind. That is, it's in industries beyond nuclear weapons and beyond primary manufacturing and aerospace. It's in many, many other industries. So keep that in mind. And that exposure, probably duration and amount of exposure is important, but not all that matters for getting beryllium disease. You could get beryllium disease from short duration of exposure and low levels of exposure. So that you have to be vigilant and keep that in mind. And the natural history, if you want to describe it, is you know many people get exposed, not all of them, but some of them get sensitized, which are which is an allergic reaction, and that's how we find out about them. And some of those people progress on to have uh, chronic beryllium disease. So it's important to kind of be seen and evaluated every step of the way. We talked about screening, how the importance, if you work with a beryllium uh, industry or any industry that uses beryllium, it's important that you get evaluated by this blood lymphocyte proliferation test regularly to make sure you are not getting sensitized. Anything else you want to add to this? No, I think really the big thing is just that if you're worried about this, again, ask your employer because employers who work with beryllium containing compounds should be following these protocols. OSHA has a standard which changed in 2018 and expanded the screening to a number of industries outside of the kind of classic beryllium industries. So if you think you're working with beryllium, if you know you're working with beryllium, if you're not getting screened, that's something to bring up your employer and say, hey, actually, like, should we be getting screened? Because this change recently, COVID happened. There's been a lot of disruptions in the workplace, and so things may still be catching up. But really, the best thing to do is get screened early because this is treatable. So chronic beryllium disease, if you develop it, which you may not, is very treatable if we catch it early. But the more screening we do, the easier it is to catch and kind of get things moving in the right direction. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Maeve. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, again, this is your host, Ry Dwight, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And my guest today was Dr. Maeve McMurdo, who is the director of our Occupational Lung Disease Program and our discussion centered around beryllium exposure and disease. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at TriadwakeMD. Thank you.